0: You're listening to TIP.
1: So, the best part about doing a show about studying billionaires is not everyone makes their money the same way. And although we've mostly focused on people that have invested their way to the top, today's show is much different. And today's show is about a person who literally played his way to the top. Uh, As a person who grew up in the 80s and 90s and literally had to wear the number 23, even though I was playing baseball, which is kind of embarrassing now that. I say it out loud. Um, I was a huge fan of today's uh, focus. And to talk about his airness, we've brought on the author of his number one selling book, and that is Roland Lazenby. And he's our guest today on today's
2: show. Back in the 1980s, everyone was talking about Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. And then this rookie came along. He was from North Carolina, and he was about to change the game completely. Michael Jordan also changed the game off the court. He has made more money than any other NBA player in history. And not only because he was the best player, most of his money came from shoes. So let's go back to a time when no one had heard about a signature basketball shoe before. And Jordan, he would rather play in Adidas. (music)
0: You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected.
1: Hey, how's everyone doing out there? Preston Pish and Stig Brodersen, your hosts with The Investor's Podcast here. And today... We are super excited about today's interview. In fact, I've been waiting for this one for quite a while, Stig, because this one's different than what we normally do. And when Stig and I were trying to think of the idea for this episode, we wanted to do something different. And so I said to Stig, hey, let's do Michael Jordan. You know, he's a billionaire. We're always studying these billionaires, but he's achieved his net worth. He's achieved all this success in a much different way than other people that we've studied. And, you know, maybe we can really learn something from that. So, What we did is we went on Amazon and we tried to find the number one selling book on Michael Jordan. And we came across the book, Michael Jordan, The Life. And this book is written by Roland Lazenby. So we reached out to Roland and we said, hey, would you like to come on the show and talk about your book? And uh, sure enough, Roland decided to come on the show. So Roland, we are so thrilled to have you with us to talk about Michael Jordan, The Life, your best selling book here. And I can honestly tell you, this was such an incredible read. I never wanted it at the end. I was like sitting in my car because I, I did the audiobook. I was sitting in my car and like would not get out of my car because the book was so good. I didn't want to stop listening to it. It was incredible. That's very nice. It was such an interesting story. And so, you know, what I find interesting, Roland, is this isn't your first book. I mean, you're a veteran of writing books and you've been covering NBA teams for decades. Back into the 1980s, you've been doing this. You've written a book about Kobe Bryant. You've written a book about Johnny Unitas, Phil Jackson, Tom Brady, and all these books are like huge sellers. So, I guess my first question that I have for you is I'm sure that when you're writing these books about these guys that have accomplished huge things in sports, there's something that you kind of take away from each one of those subjects that you're studying. And so, my question is. What is the one thing that you say you learned or took away from this experience of writing a book about Michael Jordan? Because I'm sure this consumed, how long did it take you to write this book? Because this book is huge.
3: Well, I spent a number of years writing smaller books about the bulls, traveling with them, not literally on the bus, but as a reporter in the pool. And so uh, I'd written a lot. But, you know, my career has evolved. Yes, I've written about Johnny Unitas and Tom Brady. Those are juvenile books. And so the main takeaway from the Jordan book, I was sitting with him in 2008 at the NBA pre-draft camp in Orlando. And we were just looking back a little bit. And he said, you know, timing is everything. And there are so many takeaways. Because I really was writing about several generations of Jordans in the book, but his life really, at a certain point, took on this perfect timing. And I don't think that that's something that an investor or someone uh, trying to achieve goals in business can go out and enforce. You don't create your perfect timing. But I think you have to be very aware of it.
2: Great response, Roland. So let's talk basketball here. One of the things that impressed not just me, I guess, but most basketball fans worldwide was that Jordan always looked like his team was you know, one point down with one minute to go. He was so intense. And that was basically regardless of the score, regardless of his only practice, and he also played a lot of games when he was injured. Perhaps you could tell us your favorite story about how hard Mike Jordan actually played the game and also how his competitive mindset made him one of the greatest athletes of all time.
3: Well, Bill Jackson brought George Mumford, a mindfulness expert, who had actually roomed with Dr. J at the University of Massachusetts for a while. He brought George Mumford to the team in the mid-90s. And at first, Michael and all the players were rolling their eyes at all the mindfulness issues. And I mean, the NBA doesn't have a lot of practice time anyway with the schedule. Who wastes practice time on meditating? Part of this thing was that Phil wanted his players to be able to deal with pressure. Now, Michael had his own capabilities early on. Obviously, he had hit the shot to give the University of North Carolina the championship as a freshman. And he had these elevated abilities. And Mumford went into practice and just watched for a month. And he thought maybe Jordan had some kind of mental condition. He had never seen. And George had played a year of basketball. He got injured, but he was sort of like I was, playing a freshman year back when freshmen weren't eligible. But he had played at UMass. He played a fair amount of pickup ball with Dr. J. He was a kid off the streets of South Boston and he was stunned at Jordan. He thought maybe he was bipolar or he wasn't sure, but he had such, in a mere practice, he had such an elevated state of consciousness. He really just drove things at a level that George Mumford had never witnessed and he just kept watching him. And over about a month, he came to realize that this was Jordan's normal state. That most people, if you've been involved in competition, you'll get to the zone, what's referred to as the zone. But it's such a rare thing. I remember playing a freshman game against the University of Virginia, and I had a couple of tackles and a sack, and I just, it was magical. And I was aware of this zone thing, obviously, a couple other times, but. Mumford looked at Jordan and thought to himself, this guy lives in the zone. He can put himself there really as he needs to be. But Jordan began to embrace the mindfulness of what Michael would refer to in his media interviews as being in the moment. And he told Mumford, I wish I'd met you earlier in my career. I might not have lived my life in hotel rooms. And it was a powerful thing. Kobe Bryant, the same thing. I introduced George Mumford to Kobe Bryant in Houston one night before George even began working with the Lakers, before Phil Jackson was coaching them. And Kobe was suspicious, but he came to consider this mindfulness practice and the work that they did. He came to consider it one of the utmost important things that allowed him to function in his life. And Jordan really took these mindfulness skills. And particularly in a sport like basketball, but it's all sports. It's end to end. The pressure can be immense because these guys are playing, they have these guaranteed contracts and they're very wealthy and they have this elevated freak athlete status globally. But it's all on the line. We've seen players perform terribly in big moments. And that kind of pressure, that kind of difficulty. You make a mistake at one end of the floor and the next thing you know, you've taken it to the other end and it can build on itself in the course of a game and it robs a player of energy, of focus, all those
1: things. Watching Jordan play as a kid, my impression of him is that he never thought he was ever going to miss a shot, no matter what the conditions or the situation was. He was so Positive in his thinking that whenever he'd go out to the three point line, it didn't matter if there was a guy in his face, they were fouling him. In his mind, he's still saying, I'm going to make this shot. There's no doubt I'm going to make this shot. Would you agree with that being his typical way of thinking?
3: Right. And back to the timing is everything. There's so much that was burnished into Michael about his mindset at a young age because Michael had a brother, Larry, who was 11 months older, who was his father's favorite. And Michael's father was mechanically inclined, a very smart man. Michael was not mechanically inclined. Larry was the older, stronger brother, shorter than Michael. The father was so disapproving in so many different ways. It wasn't abusive. It was subtle. But it rang like a bell in Michael's young life. And I was astounded. And of course, then Michael had these titanic one-on-one battles in the backyard with his older brother and he could not beat him. And it was very severe. And those things can be that way in childhood. And it made me so much more aware of the tremendous power and effect of sibling rivalry.
2: Do you think that that is really where he got his competitive mindset? I mean, even as an adult, whenever he was done playing a game, it seems like he was just out there competing, playing golf, table tennis, whatever he'd get his hands on, almost not sleeping because he just wanted to compete, compete, compete. He didn't have to zone out. He was, as you said, I guess, always in the zone. Does that stem from the siblings' rivalry, in your opinion?
3: Almost completely. Larry, his older brother, was short and muscular and really athletic. And I remember Doug Collins look at Larry and remarked to a reporter, you know, you can look at Larry and you can see why Michael is Michael, because he spent his whole young life battling this brother, 11 months older, who was much stronger. I mean, these were every day. This is what they did. They got home from school. They went and they battled and it was a war. And it was a constant war. And Michael could not win. And then he finally won and he never lost again. And it was that thing that drove the agenda.
2: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored
0: by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So we came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep with Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. So, Roland, talk to us about
1: Tex Winter. When I read your book, you said something that I found very important to the success of Michael Jordan's development as a player. You said Tex Winter focused on fundamentals and building success habits around those fundamentals. Could you talk about who he is and maybe a story about these habits he was building into the players?
3: He's one of a kind. He was an intense perfectionist. And as Tex pointed out to me, all the great players are unbelievable perfectionists about what they do. And Tex had played for Sam Barry at Southern Cal, who had this sideline triangle offense. And it became, as Johnny Bach and other Bulls assistant coach said, it became Tex Winter's gospel pages. And Tex wrote a book about it. He built an entire system. Actually, totally different fundamentals. You'll see so many of his fundamentals in the game today. The tossback machine where everybody learns to throw perfect passes. The tossback machine is Tex Winner's creation. He was maniacal about fundamentals. And he had this entire system based on sharing the ball. It had all of these different fundamentals you had to learn. And it was just this unbelievable convergence because Scotty Pippen and Michael Jordan had this work ethic and this determination. And they took all of this stuff. They would spend 15 minutes and start a practice throwing chess passes. You can't get grade schoolers to do that. And I mean, they would do this every day. They had all of these drills and they did them all willfully.
1: You know, it's interesting. Whenever I was reading your book and I'm doing some research online, And I started looking at some YouTube videos, just Michael Jordan YouTube. And here comes up some of these videos that I guess Michael had made for some training camp or something. And there he is talking about the triple threat position. And it was like a 15-minute video just talking about the triple threat position and listening to Michael talk about what's going through his brain as he's assessing the defense you know, if the guy's knee is going this way, well, then that gives me these 10 options to play against that person. And he, he's going into detail, and you could tell he had spent just an enormous amount of time developing habits around how to react to certain situations. And they were ingrained down at a very, very low level. Like, if this person's foot moves forward, then that means I'm going to do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G as an option. And I just couldn't get over how much thought had gone into all these little details that, you know, I played basketball for a few years as a kid, and there's no way any coach had ever even, you know, talked about even an infinitesimal amount of detail as he did just in that one video I watched. I was blown away. And I can't help but think that a lot of that came from Tex Winter and the way that he was training these guys to focus on these little fundamental things that most people just completely blow off or don't even notice.
3: The Bulls had all these automatics, they called, these reactions. And often in really big games, they would suddenly spread the floor. Today, we see the NBA with a spread floor all the time. But the Bulls would pop into a spread floor. There would be back cuts. And they would just blow teams away because teams weren't ready for how the triangle would look in a spread. And one thing I must add, Tex's relationship with Michael was quite adversarial. Tex was the bad cop. Phil was this guy who was, you know, spousing wisdom from the mountain. And Tex was the guy who would needle Michael over his chess passes. I was sitting with Tex in the locker room before a game, and Tex, you know, had all of his investments. He was a child of depression. You left a piece of steak on your plate. He'd snatch it up and eat it. And here comes Michael, and Tex always needs Michael's shoeboxes. He likes to keep his investment papers in the shoeboxes. We're sitting in Michael's bin there in the locker, and the Michael's really pissed about that. And he looks at us there, and he's got this shoe box for Tex. And he says, you want this? And uh, Tex looks up at I me, mean, of course, and goes, yes. I mean, Tex is just such a character. And Michael looks at it and throws it in the floor. I thought it was the most disrespectful thing I'd ever seen. I was astounded. And yet
1: those two would go at each other. Wow. That's incredible.
2: So I would like to talk more about this special relationship Michael Jordan had with his coach through the years. And I think the two most interesting dynamics, at least I took away from your book, was his relationship to uh, Dean Smith and North Carolina and then Phil Jackson in Chicago Bulls what do you think he learned from them and is there something from that relationship you think that we as business people can use
3: well that is fascinating it's such a complex thing dean smith had such a tightly controlled system you know i was talking to a couple of players and they said, what people don't realize is a tremendous amount of character that it took for Michael, who had all of this athleticism. He could do anything he wanted, anytime. And all of that was not allowed at Carolina. You couldn't put those things on display. You didn't even go one-on-one against somebody in that system. It was so tightly controlled. Pro coaches trying to look at UNC players and evaluate their talent were going nuts because it was hard to really see the athleticism. Michael did that great dunk against Maryland that the Atlantic Coast Conference made into a promo and Dean Smith wouldn't even allow it to be showed on his coaches' show. So there was this tremendously talented figure. Who came in and the text winner always said, if Michael hadn't been that disciplined person who was willing to set aside all the flashy elements of his talent to play in that system. And literally, Dean Smith had to force Michael to move on almost. It was almost like Dean Smith made that decision for Michael to leave North Carolina, but that adherence to discipline was such a value in Michael's life.
1: And when you say throw him out, you mean he threw him out because he was so talented and he knew he was going to bigger things, right?
3: Well, yeah, Michael had a decision as a junior to turn pro. He really didn't show any indication. I mean, he was just studying for his exams. He'd gone to school. But Dean had seen this timing. We'll go back to that. He had friends. He was close with the group that would become Michael's agent. And he had seen that this was where things were going to be. And so he he had really sort of nudged him out.
2: You know, it's really interesting to hear about Jordan this time and this stage in his career, because now we're talking about timing and I can't help to think how much is timing and how lucky, I guess, has it been to meet the right coaches at the right time? Is it even justified to talk about something like that and not in any way try to downplay Mike Jordan's skills as a basketball player, of course.
3: All around, Michael, are almost surreal. The people who were close, who influenced one another, who came into conflict with one another. And Michael was this great force that blew through all of their lives with this timing and provided the connectivity for everything.
1: So Roland, one of the things that we've noticed with all the billionaires that we study and these people that are literally number one in the world at what they do, it really always comes down to the mindset. And if I had to break down the mindset into two areas, the first would be they set the destination. So they've made it up in their mind that I'm going to be number one in the world at whatever. And they make up that mindset, that the destination that they're going to very early in their life, or it's something that they've been plugging away at for decades. And then the second part is just the mindset of being in the moment and really working towards that destination and having the willpower to get there. And so when I look at your book and I you know, read through this, a lot of what you see is really kind of the second half, which is the just total brutal work ethic and competitiveness that Jordan had to get there. But I guess whenever I'm thinking through the first part of this mindset, which is setting the destination... Do you really think that whenever he was in high school, when he got cut his sophomore year, that at that point in time, he made up his mind that he was going to be the number one player on the entire planet? And the reason I asked this is because I was watching this interview. Jordan had retired. He was running some summer camp or something like that with high schoolers. And I guess there was some high school student that was the number one player. I can't remember the guy's name, but he was the number one player in the whole US for high school play. And he kept Jagging just like poking at Jordan, like, Hey, I'm going to beat you at one on one. I'm going to beat you at one on one. And Jordan's retired. And he he was like, You know, he got so frustrated with this kid. Is he's like, Hey, you know, at 10 o'clock tonight when everyone's, you know, sleeping, come out here. We're going to play and we're going to settle this. And in the interview, he was kind of angry when he was telling this story. He said, I absolutely crushed this guy. If there was a video that you could take and watch how badly I just destroyed him. It was a total embarrassment. And he said, I looked at this kid and I told him, you might be the number one player for high school, but guess what? I'm the number one player on the entire planet. And like he was angry when he said this. And whenever I watch this video, I'm thinking to myself, this dude set the destination and the destination was, I'm going to be the number one player in the world. Do you think that this was something that was consciously burning in his mind from the day he was in high school?
3: I don't. I do think that his response to any given situation, my name's not on that list for the varsity. I've got to play on the JV when I'm the best player on the floor. It was an extremely visceral thing early on. The other amazing thing about Michael, because he became known for this great work ethic, is how lazy and worthless he was as a teenager. He vexed his parents no end. He had a job one week his entire life. There was this guy who had a motel with a swimming pool and a restaurant. And Michael didn't go get this job. His mother, who worked at the bank, knew this businessman and got him set up and Michael had to clean the pool. He was afraid his friends would walk by and see him cleaning this pool. It was demeaning. He worked exactly one week and quit. The thing that absolutely amazed me is that the pay stub Michael's one week of work in his entire life survived low these many years and became an item. And no one, they just, when I went through the museum, there was his pay stub from working at that swimming pool for that one week. And there was no explanation of it. But when you realize that that pay stub survived to come to rest in that museum, to me, that was astounding. But Roy Williams, who coaches at UNC now, was an assistant then, he was very close with the Jordan family, and he said some powerful things to Michael. Michael did have these ambitions to be great, don't get me wrong. But he said, You can't work like the average guy and have large ambitions. You have got to have the large work ethic. You know, you've got to do all these things, put yourself in position. Michael has said, and Roy recalls that because Michael was acting a little lazy as a freshman at UNC. These things are present, but they don't come to full flower sometimes till later in life. And I think that's a big part of it.
2: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's
0: sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one and actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners.
2: Back to the show. Let's move on from the one pay stop and talk about a lot more money because basketball itself made Mark Jordan a multimillionaire. But the reason why he today is a billionaire is really because of his activities off the court, and Nike and especially the signature basketball shoe market has been a major factor in building his wealth. Could you tell us your favorite story? about this relationship that was profitable, but also very volatile between Michael Jordan and Nike?
3: Well, I've been blessed with both my uh, Jordan book and my Kobe Bryant book to spend lots and lots of time with Sonny Vaccaro, who was the primary figure in Nike basketball. And there were other people around, but Sonny Vaccaro was the one who said, we've got to put it all into Jordan. and Michael, you know, had his head turned by, obviously, he'd worn Converse. He, he really liked Adidas. And it was Michael's mother, as Sonny Vaccaro explained, who really drove that deal. Michael was a college junior. He's 21 years old, but he was your typical, spoiled, uninitiated kid in the ways of the world. And, I mean, this was an incredible gift. No one had ever gotten a royalty on shoes. And Nike gave him this deal where he got a percentage. No one had gotten that. And suddenly, uh, all the different things happened. You know, the Michael image really was a first-time thing. Nike ended up doing all this stuff that even Nike didn't know it could do. And she was there and ready. And she had her demands. Sonny Vaccaro said, you know, I've dealt with so many people in my life. She is truly... And these are subtle things that fans can't pick up on. This they don't have that level of understanding. Neither do media people. And Sonny Vacara, who was there in the all of the moments, said she was driving for that deal. She's one of the truly impressive people I've met in my life. And so Michael carried the force of his family with him. He had this great attention to detail. He had this tremendous discipline. All of these things were so vital.
1: And But I think a lot of the people who haven't read the book that might be listening to the interview, Sonny Vaccaro was a guy who had done tons of deals. He had worked with tons of various professional athletes with his training camps and things. And so for him to make such a a strong statement about Jordan's mother and orchestrating this deal, I think, says so much.
3: Right. Sonny was the guy who made Nike. Basketball blow up because they were paying the coaches all of his cash under the table. Sonny himself was making like a $20,000 annual salary with Nike in the 70s when he came up with the idea. You know, Sonny was a guy who came out of Pittsburgh. He was a gambler. He had sort of this shady Vegas background. He has a brother who's a well known bookmaker in Vegas. And Sonny suddenly appears in basketball. And he comes up with the idea, well, we're going to get all the players to wear our shoes because we're going to pay the coaches. And Nike began funneling all this cash to Sonny, and he was spreading it out. And all of a sudden, Nike basketball, ex- college basketball exploded. And pro basketball wasn't thought of. And Sonny watched Michael help win the championship. He said, this kid's got the it factor when Carolina won. And he pushed Nike to do the whole deal with Michael and to go really large with and the instincts for that and the way it blew up. And once it happened, the various figures at Nike who helped channel that in terms of advertising and just the way they there had never been a player, not only who got the royalty, but who was packaged and promoted the way Michael was. You know, and there was all this synergy with Gatorade, and it just became—I think I said—he was the godhead of Michael became the godhead of global sports marketing. And he really, Michael didn't know he could achieve this stuff. The people at Nike didn't know what they could achieve. They wanted to get rid of Michael because they realized that they had given him this royalty and these shoes with the ads. These shoes blew up on them. They. They had so many, They it suddenly created this business that was out of control, frankly. They, they couldn't get a sense. You know, it up, it retreats, it's up. And so they were going to get rid of him and just go back to their nice little college hoops business.
2: I mean, this was a big deal. I think you mentioned that they actually paid him more than the Bulls did at the time. And that was at a part in time where he hadn't played a minute of NBA basketball. And Nike was not a big company at this point in time. We actually read Phil Knight's book. I think it was episode 96 here on the podcast. And he talks about how he was sweating on this Michael Jordan deal because it was a big deal to him. It was a very small company. Adidas was the big competitor that everyone, I guess, including Jordan, wanted to be associated with. It was definitely not Nike at the time, if you were in that league. And they just took the chance and Phil Knight was scolded for accepting his staff, to make this deal with Jordan.
3: Vaccaro and Phil Knight are in a battle over who gets credit for this. I'm good friends with Billy Packer, and during the 1984 Olympics, when Vaccaro was trying to sell Jordan to Nike to do this, Billy said, you know, for some reason, Sonny's a funny guy, but he asked me to go to dinner with Phil Knight and Sonny, of course, and they're in Los Angeles, and Sonny is a very animated guy's He's a street guy, and he's trying to tell Phil Knight, and Billy's just sitting there watching. He's always been fascinated by Vaccaro, and he says there was no sense at all that Phil Knight was going to go in this huge, as Sonny was urging him to do. But Billy was right there. He was not involved in the deal. He was a friend of Sonny's. He was a powerful, well-known broadcaster at the time. I mean, Sonny Vaccaro is... is, a. A funny, great guy. I enjoy talking to him all the time. But it's not your view of the classic business deal that launches the empire. You know, and Phil Knight's a a very different guy himself. You know, he came out of the track side of things. He's not really into team sports. He doesn't get the whole thing in some ways. But he's brilliant. Phil Knight's brilliant in so many ways. And it's just a fascinating When you look at not just the money made by Nike and Jordan, but the impact upon business and marketing and product development, all of those things, it really was a seminal moment. And it, it almost happened despite the key figures.
1: So Roland, when I was reading your book, there was one story in there that really made me laugh and just think to myself, this is why this guy became who he was. And it was a story that you were telling He had just gone pro. He hadn't even played a pro game yet. It was that summer before his first pro season. And he's now training with the Bulls. And I forget the name of the coach at the time, but the coach was putting the players out there in teams of three, and they were playing against each other, and they were just random teams of three. And they were playing against each other, and they were playing first team to 10. And then that team would come off, the next three on three would go out there and play And what the coach found was that every time Michael was on a team, that team would win no matter what. So I want you to tell the rest of the story. Whenever the score got up to seven, tell the rest of this story to folks, because this just encapsulates everything from his drive to his mindset to all that stuff. I really love this story.
3: It was the coaches, you know, when you coach a team and you're assessing talent You do things like this, you know, they're playing to 10, they get to seven and suddenly he flips them to the other side and Michael as a competitor is getting infuriated by this. They were witnessing this for the first time and they were just doing an evaluation of this. I mean, they'd never seen anything like this competitiveness. And the more they did it, the angrier Michael got because he would take the team to one lead and they would flip him to the other.
1: And then he'd come back and win. Like he'd be up seven points on one team. They'd swap him to the other team. And they might not even have a point. And Michael would come back and win with the other team, right?
3: Exactly. And, you know, here's a rookie doing this. And the veterans, you know, the Chicago Bulls back then it was a terrible franchise. It was nearly broke. There were questions they might move out of Chicago. They wouldn't even bother to take down the plexiglass when the hockey team played. You'd go to a Bulls game and have a lot of nights have to watch the Bulls through the plexiglass in old Chicago Stadium. I think the thing that's so amazing, the way Michael conducted himself, and yet he was perfectly willing in other ways to be a function of convention, obey. And then on the other hand, he attacked the system. And I think one of the things that is amazing and perhaps an important role model about Michael is that he came in in that mode to effect change. And yet he was quite willing. To be a soldier and that willingness, the combination of the two, this guy who was absolutely ruthless when it came to certain elements, yet was quite willing to be a part of things. And I think that is exceptional.
1: All right. So, Roland, you've written a book about Kobe Bryant. You've obviously written this book about Jordan. And so I've got to ask you the famous question. If you took either one of these guys in their prime, who's going to win?
3: I think Jordan, but I'm not I mean I'm I'm not putting any money on that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Jordan would win, but Worthy claims to have beaten him. When he finally conceded to Michael's desire to play one-on-one, Worthy got a victory and got the hell out of there. He did not want to engage in that battle. So, I mean, there are people who have beaten Michael Kobe was a maniac about one-on-one. His father, who was an NBA player, just like Jordan had it with his brother, Kobe and his father battled, and and when Kobe finally beat him, Joe Bryant, Kobe's father, refused to ever play him again. (laughs) You know, the rest of us look at these one-on-one matches as, you know, it, it is an intense thing, and it is sort of a measure of many things, but they're really just sort of fun engagements. But this stuff is, uh, it's the ultimate macho statement for the ultimate macho men.
1: (laughs) All right. I like that. This interview was so much fun. Your book was amazing. Absolutely love your book. People that are listening to this, if you want to read something that's very motivational, if you're looking for some energy in your own life, I can tell you this book had motivated me beyond reproach. And Roland, if people want to find out more about you, where can they find your book, all that kind of stuff? Give them a handoff so that they can learn more about you.
3: Well, I'm always uh, at Twitter, at Lazenby, at L-A-Z-E-N-B-Y. Michael Jordan, the life's in 14 languages. You know, no one knows who I am. That's not the important thing. The important thing is that Michael Jordan came out of nowhere. You know, in pro basketball was purely backwater for the most part. And he came, his energy and drive, all the things we've discussed here, resonated globally in a way that nothing else ever has.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time, Roland. We really enjoyed this interview with you.
3: I, too, enjoyed it. Thank you for the wonderful questions. And I've done a lot of these, but this is
1: an all timer. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, sir. (laughs) Thank you. All right. So at this point in the show, we're going to go ahead and play a question from our audience. And this question comes from Brendan.
0: Hey guys, my name is Brendan. I am a 21 year old college student. I just had a quick question about any recommendations or kind of suggestions you would have for a younger guy trying to get involved in investing. I'm a finance major, so I've been trading currency and stocks since I was 17. But I kind of just wanted to hear your thoughts on anything that would kind of enhance my experience and kind of make myself just an all around better investor. Before I get into the real world and I graduate. So, any tips you would have, books that would help, stuff like that, be greatly appreciated. Thank you guys. Love the show.
1: All right, Brendan. So, really interesting question. This is a question that we love to ask all of our guests because, you know, whenever you ask somebody a question, they might give you a two or three minute response. And there's, you know, not a lot of value to be captured in two to three minutes. But if you can ask a person what their favorite book or a book that influenced them the most, That might be like a three or four hour response or maybe even longer depending on the size of the book. So I find that that's probably one of the best questions a person can ask is the one that you just did. So what I would tell you is this, if you've had a bunch of classes and you're a finance major, I personally really like Joel Greenblatt's book, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. I think that that is a very easy to read book for somebody who has a little bit of background in finance. And he's given you some real nuggets on how to make good money through the implementation of special situations. So I don't think that you're going to get that kind of training in your schooling. And I think that it's something that you can capture a whole lot of value out of a pretty short read. So that'd be my book recommendation for you.
2: So, Brendan, I have two book recommendations. The first one would be From Good to Great by Jim Collins. And not so much because all the so-called great companies that he talks about in his book, they're still... The best companies out there. Some of them are. Some of them are not. But it's more his thought process about evaluating business in general. I think is really helpful, regardless of you're an investor or not, or just a business person in general. And the other book I would like to recommend is Influence by Dini. and that's because if you want to master business, you really need to master the human mind and how humans interact with each other. And I think. At least on my part, influence taught me so much about how we have all these biases and how we behave and why we behave the way we do. And I think that's very important whenever you start your career. You said that you want to be a good all round investor. I think that could be a potential dangerous road to take. I would recommend that you concentrate on a niche. And I know that this might sound kind of intuitive, for instance, to the Interview we did with someone like Jim Rogers, one of the best investors in the world. And he talked about the way he got started investing was really to read up on all the asset classes and saw how they were all linked together. And that way he could value what's the cheapest asset class and like have this macro perspective already when he started out. That might sound like an appealing approach. You're talking about you're looking also at currencies, you're looking at stocks. But I think for most people that are not Jim Rogers, I think it might be body morph that you can chew especially when you're starting out I think I would concentrate on finding a niche that really appeals to you and then whenever you feel you master that you might go on to another asset class
1: all right Brendan so fantastic question hopefully the book recommendations help out I know the ones that Stig gave you are really amazing books I fully endorse those as well they're incredible reads For calling in and leaving your question, we're going to give you a free subscription to our intrinsic value course that we just finished building coming out of your undergrad with a finance degree. I think looking at our intrinsic value course might help you out a lot because what's going to happen is you're going to look at things from a more practical standpoint instead of an academic standpoint. And that's something that we are really proud of with our new course. So we hope you enjoy it. And then for anybody else that wants to check out the course, go to our TIP Academy on our Investors Podcast website and you can see the course there. All right. So if you want to get your question played like our guests here, just go to asktheinvestors.com. And if you go to asktheinvestors.com, you will see there's a little recorder there. You just hit record and you can ask your question. And then it goes right into our queue. And if we select it and play it on the show, you get access to one of our courses.
2: All right, guys, that was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of The Investor's Podcast. We see each other again next week.
1: Thanks for listening to TIP.
0: PRP, 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 PRP,
3: PRP, PRP, PRP,
1: PRP,